Good afternoon, friends. Today is February, I'm sorry, March 18th. It's a Friday, 4.37 p.m. I hope everybody's having a great day. And I'm just going to share a new episode with you today. So I've, everything's been good. I've been working a lot and the weather's been great and super excited about the sun today. Today's like 70 degrees and I'm always outside barefoot and no, sh- and no shirt on. A lot of the plants are coming to life and I've been watching elderberries. The elderberry bushes are gathering, their, their leaves are coming out, their new leaves are coming out. And I feel it, and I feel like that is a sign of spring. So, with that, welcome to my show, the Coffee with Lion Man. Thank you so much for coming back. And today we're going to be sponsored by our new camp, which is called the Milkweed Survival Camp. Registration will open on April first. And what our camp is going to be like, we're going to have a uh, week one in June, we're going to have for younger kids. And the second week we're going to have for a bit older kids. And the second week will be for, we're going to be hiking either in, uh, in upstate New York for a few days doing a backpacking trip. And that will be for kids that are 10 and up and below and nine and below are going to be for the first week. And you can find more information at, at my website at the Lion Man School of Rewilding.com. And we'll we'll be posting that on Facebook as well, on the Lineman School of Rewilding, and also my Facebook page, Maximilian Lineman. And registration opens April first, so it's a limited amount of people per camp, and we're going to cap that. Um, and today, with that, I'm going to share with you three articles. So we have a jam-packed session. And as always, I will be reading and also interpreting some stuff. And I hope you just sit back can enjoy and please give me feedback. So the first article today is called, the title is Approaches to Reconstruction of Early Celtic Land Use in the Central Neckar Region in Southwestern Germany. And this is published in 1999. And so here's some information uh, from that article. Besides the generally fertile soils of the, on the Los, there are also climatic conditions that are worth mentioning. The average rainfall is about, I'm sorry, the average temperature is about 10 degrees Celsius in the, in the Nakar Valley. And precipitation reaches 650 to 750 millimeters, I believe, or millimeters, or they say RAM, uh, or millimeters per year, evenly spread throughout the re- year without particularly, particularly dry periods. They say grapevines are widely cultivated today on south-facing slopes in the region. So even though it's in Germany, people are still able to cultivate grapes. The Nakar is, uh, the, it's actually defined by a river in Germany, 362 kilometer long, and it flows through the southwest of German Germany, and it's a major tribu- tribu- tributary tributary to, to the Rhine River, the river. So a tributary is something that feeds into something else. And a little bit about grapes, just a general heads up. The earliest archaeological evidence for dominant position of winemaking in human culture dates back from a, from uh, to about 8,000 years ago. And that's in Georgia and Eastern Europe. Um, so that's like Western Asia. And so th- grapes have been around for a long time. 
This favorable, favorable land with traces of occupation from the early Neolithic. So again, what is Neolithic? It, well, Neolithic describes a point where Neolithic means new stone. So you had Stone Age and then different periods of that, um, the Paleolithic Age, as a lot of people know, the Paleo Diet, for example. But after that, later on, closer to us came the Neolithic Age. And this is early Neolithic Age onwards. Was This region was comparatively heavily settled during the late Hallstatt and early Latene periods. These are cultural periods during um, circa 5500 to 4500 BC. Um, so that would be 7,500 years ago to 6,500 years ago. The work from four early Celtic settlements studies um, from studies 91,268. So this study, they looked at over 90,000 plant remains from over 250 samples. So lots of different plants were, were included in the sample were found. Obviously, they were saying cereals were the most important crops found, mainly hold barley and spelt, and einkorn was also found. They also found broomcorn millet, they found naked wheat, they found emmer wheat, naked barley, as said, oats, rye, and Italian millet, but those were mostly secondary crops. Other crops they found were, um, they found some dye plants, field, field matter, matter, M-A-D-D-E-R, which is a, produces a red dye. They found uh, this species of, uh, in the, um, the celery family, which I'm not really familiar with, so that was a new plant that I learned. They found Isatis tinctura, which is called dyer's woad or woad, um, and I believe it produces a blue color. Yes, it's a, um, an indigo dye. And it's occasionally known as Asp of Jerusalem. Uh, Celtic blue is a shade of blue also known as Glaus Celtic in Welsh or Gorm Celtic in both the Irish language and the Scottish in Scottish Gaelic. Julius Caesar reported in Commentari de Bello Gallico, the Gauls, reported that Britannia, meaning England um, in the surrounding islands, used to color their bodies blue with vitrum, a word that means primarily, quote, glass, but also the domestic name for, quote, woad, wait, uh, besides Gaulish loanword glaustum from the Proto-Celtic, meaning early, uh, early Celtic, glastos, or green. Due to this and other Roman accounts of them painting or possibly tattooing their bodies, northern inhabitants of Britain came to be known as picts or picti, meaning painted ones in Latin. Gillian Carr conducting, conducted spir, um, experiments using indigo pigment derived from woad mixed with different binders to make body paint. The resulting paints yielded colors from gray-blue through intense midnight blue to black. Interesting. Continuing. Next plant they found was a species of euphorbia. Um, the, these are a strange collection of plants, but uh, they they range from tiny, short-lived plants to long-lived trees. They have about they have over two thousand species in the genus Euphorbia, and it's a, one of the largest genera of flowering plants. 
Um, Euphorbias from the deserts of Southern Africa and Madagascar have evolved physical characteristics and forms similar to cacti, the cactus of North and South America, but they are not cactus. Notably, the plant's sap is toxic to rapidly replicating human tissue. So it has been used in any um, in skin cancer um, in, in Germany, especially. Another one plant was found was Rosita luteola. Um, and this is called weld. It's yellow weld. So this is a plant um, that was known to produce a yellow dye. Not also, they were also found wild radish. Um, and I believe they were using... I mean, all parts of the radishes are edible, but I believe they're also probably using it for a yellow dye. Um, they found legumes. They found lentils and peas and, and bitter vetch and field bean and flax and possibly opium poppy, which is interesting because um, a lot of people don't understand how it was being used. People think maybe it was poppy oil, poppy seeds. Um, so that's, that's up for debate. Maybe if the psychoactive... Um, applications as well moving on there were also high quality textiles which were found in that burial mound they were saying this this is quote from the from the article high quality textiles which were found in that burial burial mound are considered to be precious goods which were exported by the salts so that's that's pretty cool that to think about over two thousand years ago um the people living in france and germany that were called Gauls by or barbarians by the Romans were actually pretty very sophisticated people, and even to the extent they were exporting goods to far distant lands, I find that to be to be worthy of further exp- exploration. So they also found a few charred seeds of figs. So that also could have been um, imported from the south, and as well as other plants that were imported from the south, and they were probably uh, being mixed in with. Um, any cereals that were being transported, cereal grains, um, a lot of different weed seeds, but also medicinal plant seeds were mixed in there as well. Legumes and flax were important crops. And they were in, in the article, they were saying they were probably grown in rotation with the cereal or grains, but also there's evidence of saying that they were grown together. Um, so if there was one crop that failed in the same field, you'd have other crops that will like lentils that could survive because they were so different and probably immune to the disease, maybe virus or bacteria bacteria that was infecting a local population of wheat, for example, emmer wheat, for example. Continuing on, pollen analysis of profiles from the loop of the Nakar near Lafon showed that alder, alder, so alder woods um, are, is a small tree or large shrub that grows in wet conditions. It likes to grow where its feet are wet. Um, that shows that alder woods existed in this time, this cultural time of Hallstatt in the early Neolithic, where were then were then replaced um, by damp and wet meadows. So they were probably clearing that, the clearing the alder, and what was what they ended up with was um, through burning was ending up with damp and wet meadows. And they found that out through pollen. So looking at pollen accumulations over time, if there's in the in the record, if there's pollen of one thing and then it changes, that prob that could indicate that that plant is no longer there. So alder was there first, 
but due to the pollen record, because if there's a lot of alder, there's a lot of pollen in the springtime. But then if there's the, the alder switches and there's um, maybe more, uh, if it's damp and wet meadows, maybe some more grass grasses or grass grass pollen, for example, that could be indicating of that indicating that. Okay, moving on. Obviously, there's many more species of plants that, that people are using, both medicinal, edible, wild, semi-cultivated. Um, if you're if you're interested, I could send you the article because I'm looking at the list, and there's probably at least 75, 50 to 75 more plants that were noted in uh, to be found in, in in the survey species of plants. The second the second study that I want to talk about is called integrated plant protection and stone fruit. So this is uh, an, a journal from, and this was an article published in 2004 and it's titled control trials against Mises perichiae and Cydia molesta in organic farming. So these are um, pests in an organic peach orchard. And they were figuring out, they were looking at different controls. So they were using neem extracts and quassia extracts. Um, and then they were also using neem extracts and, and rhinia uh, extracts. Um, so these are to control the oriental fruit moth and the green peach aphid. And this was in a peach orchard. Um, and this was a study between 1999 to 2002 in Emilia Romana, Italy. A little bit about peaches. Although it's botanical name, Prunus Persica refers to Persia. Genetic studies suggest peaches originated in China, where they have been cultivated since the Neolithic period. Until recently, cultivation was believed to have started around 2000 BC, or 4,000 years ago. More recent evidence indicates that domestication occurred as early as 8,000 years ago in the Zhejiang, Zhejiang province of China. The oldest archaeological peach stone are from the Kuahu the Kuahujiao site and point uh, archaeologists archeologi point to the Yangtze River Valley as a place where the early early selection for favorable favorable peach varieties probably took place. A domesticated peach appeared very early in Japan uh, in 4700 BC, and then again there are more sites in China. In India, the first the first peach appeared in about by about seventeen hundred BC or thirty seven hundred years ago. Yeah, let's see the and, it, and, and then they're talking about it, it appears in Western Asia in ancient times. So around it reached it reaches Greece three hundred BC. So that's only twenty three hundred years ago. So the giant peach um, aphid. Uh, was quassia or neem extracts. They were using it on post-blooming, so after the tree was done blooming. And then they used um, pre-blooming. These are all kind of tests. Pre-blooming, pre and immediately post-blooming, um, and then untreated control. They were actually using some pyrethrum also. So this very, is very... Uh, detailed a little bit about the the details of what they were using so the three 
there were three different plants that were using um, to control these two pests. Quassia bark, Quassia, is a plant genus in the family Sam Samarobaceae. Its size is disputed. Some botanists treat it as consisting of only one species, Quassia amara, from tropical South America, while others treat it in a wide circumscription as a pantropical genus containing up to 40 species of trees and shrubs. So that's pantropical. So around the world, near the tropics, the genus was named after a former slave from Suriname, Graman Quasi in the 18th in the 18th century, the 1700s, he discovered the medicinal properties of Quassia amara. The next plant, Az Azadrakta indica, commonly known as neem or Indian lilac, and in Nigeria as dogoyaro, is a tree in the mahogany family, the Maliaceae. The Maliaceae. It is one of the two species in the genus Azardiracta and is native to the Indian subcontinent in most of the countries in Africa. It is typically grown in tropical and semi-tropical regions. Neem trees also grow on islands in southern Iran. Its fruits and seeds are the source of neem oil. So the researchers here were also using neem oil. And the, the last plant we'll talk about is variety. Um, Ryania speciosa is a species of the plant in the family Salicaceae. The species is significantly significant partly because of the rhinoid insecticides, insecticides that are derived from and have the same mode of action as the alkaloid rhinodyne, which was originally extracted from this South American plant, which is also used as a pesticide. So that's to kill fish, which could be for example, I'll tell you a little story. When I was in Ecuador in the Amazon, uh, one day Twigs and I were went out with all the men. We went to this patch of plants, and we helped to dig up some roots. So we were digging up the shrub and then using the roots, and then we replanted a lot of the cuttings. So I'm sure that patch has been there for a long time. We brought all these root clippings to the to the jungle into the jungle. We were more in a clearing back then. We walked close to this tributary to the large river. And what we did was we were pounding the root, bringing it into the water, swishing it around in the canoe and dumping it. And what happened after repeated applications, we were able to stun the fish. The, all the fish were paralyzed. And a lot of catfish, for example, it was a big thing under the diet. And they were, they all, they rose to the surface. That was a, a way to catch more fish, and I thought that was pretty cool. Continuing to continue, continuing on. So they said different activity of the tested products have been observed. Quassium showed a weak activity on secondary columns, colonies of M. persaceae, while neem extract seemed to provide some protection if applied early in the season. On C. molesta, Ryania seems to provide some protection in neem extracts as observed with the green peach aphid seem to work better if used in preventative strategy as they provide some protection if applied before infestation apart from the direct results of the experimentation the evaluation of the efficacy of natural products must take into account that the standardization of the product is extremely important to assure 
the consistency of results. Moreover, the improvements in formulations is urgent. But on the other hand, the overall orchard management that can reduce the need for high insecticide activity must can be considered and also the application criteria are rather different from those adapted in IPM or integrated pest management strategies. So this is more of a natural approach. Lastly, the last, the last article I'll talk about, it's called Integrating Botanical, Faunal, and Human Stable Carbon and Nitrogen Isotope Values to Reconstruct Land Use and Paleo Diet at LBK, a Linear, a linear, um, linear Bank Bachnin. So this is also during, I believe, during the Neolithic. Similar time period, LBK site, um, six, so this is around 8,000 years ago. And this takes place, <clears throat> um, yeah, I think this is actually taking place in the same region, same region as in Germany, in, uh, near the Nakar River Valley. So they talk about these longhouses um, that were found. The Neolithic longhouse was a long, narrow timber dwelling built by the first farmers in Europe, beginning at least as early as the, as the period seven to 8,000 years ago. They first appeared in Central Europe in connection with early Neolithic cultures. This type of architecture represents the largest freestanding structure in the world in its era. Longhouses are present across numerous regions, for example, in Eastern North America. The longhouse was a rectangular structure, 5.5 to 7 meters wide, a, var a variable length, around 20 meters up to 50, 45 meters. Outer walls were wattle and daub, sometimes alternating with split logs with pitched thatched roofs supported by rows of poles, three across. The exterior walls would have been quite short beneath the large roof. They were solid and massive, oak posts being preferred. Clay for the daub was dug from the pits near the house, which were then used for storage. Extra posts at one end may indicate a partial second story. And some houses were occupied for as long as 30 years. It's amazing. It is thought that these houses had no windows and had only one door. The door was located at one end of the house. Internally, the house had one or two partitions, creating up to three areas. Interpretations of the use of these areas vary. Working activities might be carried out in the better lit door end, in the middle used for sleeping and eating, and the far end farthest from the door could have been used for grain storage. According to another view, the interior, interior, interior was divided in areas for sleeping, common life, and a fence enclosure for keeping animals. 20 or 30 people could have lived in each house, and exceptionally, nearly 30 longhouses were found in these fortified settlements. These are later on. This is around uh, uh, 6,300 years ago. Um, for example, in Poland at Oslonki. And this, so they go, go a little bit of background, and then they talk about some of the animals that lived there and that the people used. <clears throat> they were saying that cattle were used. Um, cattle comprised 66% of the, of the domestic faunal species, and, and then pigs reached 37%, and sheep and goat reached 19%. So the cattle were primarily, predominantly used for meat, um, because intensive deering or widespread use as cattle for draft animals can be excluded. 
Sheep and goat may have been excluded for their, exploited for their hair as well as their meat. Male pigs were generally killed at less than a year old. Archaeological mitochondrial DNA analysis has detected interbreeding between domestic and wild pigs, which would be difficult to avoid while clear metrical contrast suggests small-scale intensive pig management. So they were obviously, they were mostly sedentary people at that time, farming people, and had animals. So they were talking, and they, when they were using, they were looking at this, they were called Delta 15. It was a, they were looking at stable isotopes in the landscape there to see what animals they were, they were using and how they were using them. The inference that manu of manuring in this region in Germany is consistent with strontium isotope work, indicating that pigs were kept locally, and that the cattle were mostly herded within the local landscape. A manure-enriched arable environment may also contribute to higher delta-15 nitrogen values observed in domestic versus wild herbivores and especially pigs. Phosphate evidence suggests that animals were not regularly kept in longhouses, but penning within and beyond the settlement is possible. Some manuring could also take place by allowing animals to graze fallow fields. The consistency of serial delta-15 nitrogen values in this region contrasts with more var variable signatures detected in traditional serial manuring regions. So what the, the pretty much this article is saying was that the researchers who were able to reconstruct the landscape, which I think is amazing, um, and probably human diet, they are doing that through these isotop isotopes, um, isotopic studies. Uh, to finish off a stable isotopic ratio, this term stable isotope has a meaning similar to stable nuclide, but it is preferably used when speaking of nucleides of a specific element. So they, these applications, there are tons of applications of this, um, and they use it in archaeology over time, um, radio, radiocarbon dating and also isotope analysis. So it's a whole world. Um, I'm not going to get into it today, but I think it's interesting. And people in this region in late, late, um, excuse me, early Neolithic in southern Germany, southwestern Germany, were using, um, this is before dairying was happening, but they were using cattle for meat and they were using pigs and they were using sheep and obviously had a lot of cereals were eating a lot of cereals but also lots of other plants too and so this kind of helps to round out round out the the first study that we talked about um looking at the archaeo archaeobotany of that region so that's all i have for today um i really appreciate you listening if you do have any questions really i really would encourage you to reach out and share this with all the people that you know and love. And I hope you are all having a relaxing Friday.